Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. We're so excited to be back with you today. I'm Ben Wilson. She is Kaylee Bynes, my co-host. Kaylee, it's uh, it's been a minute. We've recorded our first two episodes, and now we're bringing on our first doctor today, which I know you are very uh, excited about. How uh, how are things? I'm pumped. Um, I'm very excited for our guest today, and I'm I think that our listeners will be too. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, if, I, I will read her bio here, Dr. Rennie Ree, who we're really excited to bring on in just a moment. TLDR, she is really smart. I am not. Kaylee is also really smart. So I feel like, Kaylee, you, you I, I will just be like the intruder in this uh, upcoming <laughs> conversation. But she has done a, a ton of tremendous work in the vasculitis community and, and just in general as an assistant professor in rheumatology at the University of Pennsylvania. They still call it UPenn. I, I feel like, uh, at least in sports, it's just it's just the Penn Quakers, but I don't know what uh, what is correctly the uh, <laughs> the name. <laughs> let's, go, let's go with that, University of Pennsylvania. And she's also a member of the Penn Vasculitis Center. Also, we talked a little bit about this with Joyce in our last episode, how important the American College of Rheumatology has been and she, Dr. Ree, is on the Vasculitis Guidelines Committee. And if you listen to our last episode, they have, have been undertaking this massive project going through the first national guidelines for the management of these different forms of vasculitis. Uh, so she is also the principal investigator of multiple uh, research awards through the NIH as well. And she does a lot of different clinical and uh, different sort of research in vasculitis. Which is, uh, which is really cool for us to see. And, and one of those people that, uh, that we've talked about in our first couple episodes is the types of individuals in the industry we want to talk to for their work and, and how much they've been, uh, been able to do. And it, it is kind of interesting, Kaylee, just how going into this, and she did a rheumatology fellowship at, at uh, Pennsylvania and then kind of focused on her management and research skills in vasculitis. And I know somebody who you've been really wanting to speak with for uh, for quite some time. Absolutely. I'm really interested. Um, microbiome is really the cutting edge of science right now, and I think it's going to be fascinating to hear Dr. Rhee's research. Um, and I also just think it's really interesting because in my own work on vasculitis, I have really been looking into similarities between people, you know, what sets us as a vasculitis community apart from other people without the disease. And Dr. Ree actually looks at it on an even smaller level within this disease community, what sets patients apart from each other? Where's the differences in their microbiome, in their different uh, clinical tests, and what does that actually mean? So I think it'll be really fascinating to hear her talk. Yeah, it, it almost seems like that's kind of like the next step almost as we've kind of gone into this general vasculitis research. And just given how rare of a disease it is and so many different little variables that you're trying to figure out. I mean, it kind of makes sense from a, like a macro perspective when you think about it. But at the same time, it really is fascinating just how, like how deep you go when you're actually looking at some of these individual things. And I think that, I mean, at least to me, from not being nearly as smart as you, Kaylee, and just thinking about it from a general vasculitis perspective is what's so interesting about this. Absolutely. No, I really think that, you know, the more we are learning, the better our treatments are going to be, the better our diagnoses are going to be. And so I think this kind of work really is what's setting people apart and is making Dr. Ree, as well as others, visionaries in this field, like we like to say on this podcast. So oh, yeah. I'm really excited to talk with her. Very good. Very professional by you, Kaylee. The, the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast is what we are. And we'll bring in here Dr. Rennie Ree without 
further ado. So hope you enjoy the episode. We'll bring in Dr. Ree in just a moment. And we'll bring in now our guest, Dr. Rennie Reed. Thanks so much, Dr. Reed, for joining us on our Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. And you are, so we. this is a, a young podcast so far because we've done an introductory episode. We had Joyce Coleman, executive director of the VF, on as well. But the main purpose of this is to bring on as many medical professionals as we can. And so you are the first doctor to actually join us. So thanks so much for wow. coming <laughs> Thank you. It's an honor. I'm I'm uh, very happy to be a part of this. Absolutely. And you you obviously I remember being in Rochester this summer in Minnesota at the Vasculitis Foundation symposium, and I know you were there had a had a talk there, and it, I know it really interested a lot of people. Some of the things you had to say, and as Kaylee and I were were talking about some of the things you've done and just introducing you. It is kind of interesting now, this sort of new wave of, of thinking and research going into vasculitis, just how specifically we're trying to look at some of the different factors as it relates to different parts of the body and, and how they relate to vasculitis. So it's kind of just, you know, thinking back to the, the talk you gave, and I feel like a lot of people who, and obviously the, the point of those symposiums for people going is to learn, right, and <laughs> figure out new things about the disease. So I just kind of in, in general, I'm, I'm curious about, the whole process for you and, and how you got into this specific field, because it's something that always fascinates us. Like we're involved because we were diagnosed. And so you kind of have, we didn't really have a choice. We were, we were told this is the disease you have. And so from there you kind of start to learn more about it, but how did you get specifically into something as specific as this in the first place? And how has that kind of grown for you as you continued your career? Um, and do you, so do you mean how did I get involved in vasculitis or in the microbiome in vasculitis? Yeah, I mean, in a general sense, both, but I think, okay. yeah, I, I think first off, right, the initial, like, realization of vasculitis being a, being an interest, and then also going into the microbiome, which, like I was saying, is, is such kind of a specific, unique thing that is, that has seen a lot of growth recently. Yeah, I, so I first got interested in rheumatology, actually, as a medical student, um, I uh, actually, I was doing a physical diagnosis course, and the person who was leading that was a rheumatology fellow, so um, a rheumatologist in training. And uh, I first started hearing about the field because I knew almost nothing about it and uh, thought, hey, this sounds really interesting. And I did a rotation, an elective, and really, uh, really enjoyed it. And I was still on the fence, but throughout residency, which is that training period after medical school, um, a lot of the complex cases that got discussed in these large multidisciplinary forums ended up being rheumatology, rheumatologic um, diseases. And, you know, the, I, I loved the, you know, it, it's like a puzzle. Um, I felt like it's, you're like being a detective. You're trying to get all these clues and all these bits of information, working with all these other specialists, and um, we're all trying to figure out this mystery. And um, a lot of times patients are, um, the diagnosis is missed initially, um, understandably, because it can be very difficult to identify early on. So I thought that process was uh, very uh, fascinating and, and interesting to me. And I knew that I wanted to be in a field that would always get me kind of um, intellectually stimulated and um, and excited. So when I started rheumatology fellowship, I um, I came to Penn, 
And um, I, I had an interest in general in systemic autoimmune diseases, uh, and I was particularly interested in vasculitis and lupus. And at that time, it just so happened that Peter Merkel had also become the chief of our division, and he's um, a world-renowned expert in vasculitis who does a lot of research. So it just kind of, things just fell into place, and um, I started doing research and more training and seeing more patients, and the more I did, the more I liked. Um, I also just, you know, in, in, in general, like rheumatology deals with a lot of chronic diseases, so I love that, uh, that continuity of care, that ability to kind of follow people over time and get to know them and, um, you know, see how they do. So, uh, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel fortunate to, to kind of be here and um, to uh, be a part of this field. Well, and Dr. Merkel, it's, it's not like you're uh, learning from just some, some rando in the, the community. At <laughs> least, yeah, doc, we, we know Dr. Merkel very well, and uh, anybody I feel like who has ever gone to a symposium would uh, knows that as well. So uh, it's pretty cool. And, and you talking about that, it you know, reminds me a lot of like when I met Kaylee, my co-host here, and, and how and it's obviously a little bit different on our end just because we were diagnosed, but I mean, Kaylee has a lot of, I know the same thoughts as a, as a student herself and trying to learn a lot about this. And I think that's what kind of makes the transition and going into the, like the whole microbiome discussion kind of interesting, Kaylee. And I know it's why you wanted to, to bring on Dr. Ree as well, right? Definitely. Um, and I touched on this a little bit in the introduction, but I'm just really fascinated by how cutting edge microbiome work is. Uh, so I guess before we dive into that, Dr. Reed, do you mind giving just a brief explanation of the microbiome and why it interests you? Yeah. So um, the microbiome refers to this vast community of microorganisms, such as bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live in or on the human body. And um, they have been with us since the beginning of time. They've co-evolved with the human body. And um, it's quite amazing. I mean, they're microscopic, obviously. We can't see them. Um, but I, the analogy I like to think of, and I mentioned this in my talk at the um, symposium, too, is like you think of the planet Earth. And if you were to stand far, you know, stand on the moon and look at Earth, all you would see is blue and green and think it's just blue and green. But obviously, when you come closer and you're here, you realize there is this very intricate ecosystem of so many different species and different organisms that are closely intertwined and affecting, um, the, affecting the world. So in the same way, there's a huge ecosystem that is living on our bodies that we don't even realize on a day-to-day -day basis and we can't see but it is um, really shaping our health and our function. And um, there is uh, substantial data, and it's, it's pretty much fact, um, that this microbiome on our body is an important part of um, healthy function. So, you know, they do studies in mice, and if they've been able to create germ-free mice, mice without bacteria and other uh, microbiome essentially are not able to develop normally. So, um, so there's been a lot of uh, really interesting studies looking at the microbiome and um, a variety of conditions. There's been a lot of focus on metabolic diseases and um, certain types of infections like C. difficile infections, which are a really uh, severe form of diarrhea. Um, and there's, uh, you know, 
very convincing evidence now that if you change the, micro, the gut microbiome um, of animals, of, of mice or humans, um, you are going to increase their risk of obesity, heart disease, and serious infections. And so uh, a lot of people have also, a lot of scientists have also been interested in studying this in autoimmunity because we also know that the microbiome is essential to a health, the healthy development of our immune system. And uh, so there's been a lot of work primarily in inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune disease that causes inflammation in your gastrointestinal tract. And there, you know, there's, this has really been the pioneer in terms of autoimmune diseases. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that alterations in the gut microbiome can predispose to this disease. But there's other diseases, too, that there has been a lot of interest, um, primarily rheumatoid arthritis. There's been findings of certain types of bacteria in the oral cavity and in the lungs that uh, are uh, seen in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and there's been studies demonstrating how these bacteria can lead to certain um, uh, certain autoantibodies and inflammation that can lead to rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, there are researchers studying the microbiome, primarily gut microbiome, in spondylarthritis and lupus, and uh, and we know in vasculitis that infections do cause some forms of vasculitis. And, you know, the prime examples are hepatitis B virus and polyarteritis nodosa, hepatitis C vi virus and cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, and streptococcus in IgA vasculitis. And so in these cases, we know that if we treat those viruses, those microbes, the, the bacteria, um, then those vasculitides will, will resolve. So everyone's for a long time has been searching and searching for the microbes that cause other types of vasculitis, but no one's really been able to find anything where we haven't seen any kind of consistent uh, findings. Uh, but now we have this great advanced technology that enables us to easily evaluate and, and study the microbiome. And these are just, um, you know, advanced high throughput sequencing technology that lets us kind of survey um, millions of different bacteria all in one setting. And, and then we've got certain computing and bioinformatic tools that allow us to try to make sense of all this data. So with the, um, with the availability of this technology, now we have an opportunity to really study how do these microbes, um, harmless or potentially harmless microbes that are just living on us, how could those be interacting with our immune system and could they somehow also be playing a role in vasculitis? So um, I, I think all of those kind of questions um, are, are particularly interesting to me. And I have to say that Patients always ask me, you know, it's, it, they always ask, why did, why did this happen? You know, why now? And we usually just do a lot of hand waving. We're not sure. Nobody knows. There may be some type of um, 
immune dysfunction that has occurred, some genetic predisposition, but that's not all because we know there are not really strong genetic links to this. Um, so there has to be something else. And, and usually that something else is some type of environmental exposure, such as microorganisms. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, I think, an exciting area to kind of delve into, um, but still really early. Can't, you know, we haven't, we don't have enough information to make any strong conclusions um, at this moment. That's really fascinating. Is that you talked a little bit about, you know, diagnostics and then patients asking all of these follow-up questions, why now, why me? Is that what kind of bridged the gap for you between being uh, doing more diagnostic rheumatology work and doing this microbiome research and asking these type of questions? Is that how the, it connected for you? Or I guess, how did you make that transition? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, seeing so many patients with this, you know, and the questions that they ask are exactly the questions that are important. Um, and and so um, that has definitely, you know, played a role in in my own interests in this area as well. So, yes. That's great. And so some of the research that I've come across personally, just because I also, as a patient, am very interested in environmental ideology of ANCA-associated vasculitis and vasculitis in general, some of the research I've seen has to do with, as you mentioned, the gut microbiome, um, diet, you know, C-section, birth, things like that. But you've done a lot of work on the nasal microbiome. So why, why that focus? Yeah, so um, the nasal cavity is a very unique area that of involvement in one of our uh, vasculitides in um, granulomatosis with polyangitis. Um, it was formerly known as Wagner's. Uh, this disease has very uh, prominent and sometimes destructive sinonasal uh, inflammation. And it's something we see, we don't see in a lot of other diseases. We do see it in some others, uh, like relapsing polychondritis, sometimes the sarcoidosis. It's just a very interesting area um, that has been involved. And we know that the nose is an active site of immunity. We know that there's immune cells there. You know, if you think about all the times you've gotten a runny nose, um, you know, there's that's your immune system uh, fighting off some infection. So uh, and then um, there ha there were also a lot of really intriguing studies that were done back in the 1990s where investigators were looking at Staphylococcus aureus in the nose. And Staph, Staph aureus is, is uh, a well-known inhabitant of the nasal cavity. It just likes to go there. And a lot of people are colonized with Staph aureus and don't even know it. It's not hurting them. It's not bothering them. But what they found is that patients with GPA have are more likely to have Staph aureus in their nose and if they do, there's a higher chance of them relapsing. And this ultimately led to a randomized clinical trial of an antibiotic, cotrimoxazole, also known as trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, um, the brand name is Bactrim, um, to study if this antibiotic could prevent relapses, and actually, in fact, it did. So, you know, some people were still skeptical. They thought, well, Bactrim has some anti-inflammatory properties, and how do we know those uh, those relapses in the nose, uh, the nasal cavity or the sinuses was truly GPA? Maybe it was an infection. So 
there's still some skepticism about the trial, but I think that there's uh, definitely scientific basis to support that maybe it does work. And there's been a lot of other really, uh, really interesting studies that have been done, not particularly about the nose, but just about um, how um, infections and the development of autoantibodies that are associated with ankylosis, meaning the um, anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies that we see in this disease. There's uh, there's been data about you know how the um, proteins or the DNA, you know the DNA of Anca can sometimes look similar to that of bacteria. So maybe you know immune system is seeing bacteria getting confused and then attacking you know developing Anca and, and causing um, autoimmunity. And this is this idea is called cross reactivity. Um, it was also known as molecular mimicry. Um, and this has been like a, a theory that's been around for decades, but there have been scientists who've actually shown that this may be um, actually, in fact, the case for uh, Inca vasculitis. I'm, I'm learning. I'm just like writing all these stuff, this stuff down, Dr. E. It's uh, <laughs> much uh, right now. I don't Yeah, Kaylee probably knows all this stuff already, but and it's funny that you mentioned something like Bactrim, and I was going to ask you to say that whatever the actual drug name is, like five times fast, because that was a very impressive <laughs> off the tongue. But and, and like I remember when I was diagnosed, like I was given that course of Bactrim, but it was more as a uh, and, and more to prevent any sort of infection immediately mm -hmm. in the, the post-diagnosis state that you're in, right? And right. I kind of feel like I mean that obviously is always been just the, the consensus or just the general consensus from the, the doctor side of it. Like that's why you, that's sort of where the administering comes from because after that, I mean, I'd never, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever heard the word Bactrim or that thrown out there in, in any sort of way. And that's, I've, I was diagnosed about six years ago now. So it is kind of interesting that while it's, there's this sort of assumed method of usage in that one specific area, it might almost be, there almost might be a different way that could also have an impact in a good way. Correct. Yeah. And I, I do have to say that at the moment, I primarily use Bactrim the way that you described it, mainly to prevent this rare lung infection called pneumocystis pneumonia, um, uh, which is secondary to the immunosuppressive medications. But I, you know, there are, I have seen some patients where they get these nagging sinus nasal symptoms and, you know, we don't, you know, we're trying to balance not overdoing the immunosuppression. And then sometimes we'll kind of add on the full dose of Bactrim and, you know, I've seen people say that that helps. So there could be, you know, there, I think there could be some use um, clinically for this, but I, I don't kind of do it in all patients. It's not my um, uh, first choice for, for management of GPA at the moment. Right. And I know we're obviously, we're talking about a very specific thing here within you know, your, your research of, of the microbiome, but I know just from a general sense, and Kaylee and I, we've talked about this on earlier for our, our, our first couple of podcast episodes here, and it's all about how those, those steroids and the different other immunosuppressants are such a big goal is trying to reduce those and how those can just have such, especially from the patient side, the, the effects are not ideal, even though right. they're necessary. And so, like, I think of you know, like myself, like I got nasal 
symptoms for me have always been my biggest issue and like my sinuses I joke with my friends are just destroyed essentially uh, uh-huh. at this point so I wonder too just from as you get into your into your research like is I'm assuming is that the overarching goal here to, to try and find that alternative that you're saying look we, we see all these other things that sure they work but they're not ideal for the for the patient is that kind of the next step is yes. in, in, sort of exactly Yes, yes, exactly. And I, what, what is really exciting about rheumatology these days is this idea of targeted therapy. So, you know, like prednisone, yeah, it works great, but it's just, it is like just wiping out everything. You know, it's like throwing a grenade at the problem and just like it will wipe out the problem, but unfortunately there's going to be a lot of casualties and, and a lot of other collateral damage. So instead of doing that, can we just really identify the specific key players and just get rid of those without affecting the other healthy parts of the body. Um, and that's, that's going on rheumatology. And that's the exact same idea with, you know, with potentially with the microbiome. If in fact the microbiome is involved rather than just wiping out all the bacteria, including a lot of healthy bacteria, which is what these oral antibiotics are doing. Can we just really identify which bacteria which viruses, which microbes are involved, and really just target those. Um, and we got to be careful, too, because these microorganisms ha- are very quick and adapt to situations. They develop resistance. They figure out ways to evade um, the, the antibiotics, these antivirals, these treatments. And so um, we have to kind of be careful um, and thoughtful about how we're using them. That's really just fascinating. All of this is just, I'm very excited to learn about it. Um, when you talk about uh, trying to find these targeted treatments, can you tell us a little bit more about the clinical trial and, and what that looks like, what you're looking for? Yeah, so um, as we, so we, we started off just saying, let's just observe and see what type of, you know, microbes are present in the nose of patients. And so for several years now, we've been collecting nasal swabs and a lot of clinical data uh, in patients with GPA and other types of ankylosis, including microscopic polyangitis, eosinophilic granulomatosis vitrosis polyangitis, even relapsing polychondritis, as well as healthy patients. And then we've been looking at it and finding a lot of really interesting results, including changes that are occurring many months prior to patients flaring. So. So kind of with that information and with that trial of Bactrim in the past, we said, well, let's let's do a study where we take people who are clinically look like they're doing fine or stable. And let's just see what happens when we give them uh, a full dose of this cotrimoxazole, this Bactrim. Um, and so this study is still ongoing and uh what we're doing is not just looking at the uh, microbes and, and the bacteria, because we expect that those will change, but can we also just look at the uh, immune system in the nose? You know, can we, we're doing these uh, gene expression studies, which basically look at what types of uh, gene, genet- genes of the immune system, of immune cells are being expressed, and do what I, I'm curious to see is, does Bactrim reduce, do patients have some ongoing, maybe subclinical mild inflammation that we're not fully detecting, and do they get Bactrim and does that get better? And does that kind of 
coincide with the change the uh, changes in certain types of bacteria um, in the in the nasal cavity. So uh, and then we're going to follow them, you know, long term. These patients are only getting it for four weeks, but we're going to follow them long term and see what what happens later on after we stop it, and who who's going to go on and develop a uh, a flare of their disease. So this is a, a, just a small pilot study that we're doing uh, here, but we, um, we're we still enrolling and we are planning to analyze um, some of that data soon. That's great. And how, I guess, if people are interested in, in enrolling in this trial, how would they go about doing that? Who are you looking for in those type of studies? Yeah, so we are looking for patients who have a diagnosis of GPA, granulomatosis polyangitis, who uh, have not had any active disease clinically in the past three months, who are not on any uh, antibiotics, um, including kind of that low-dose spectrum um, for, uh, for prevention of uh, PCP, and um, uh, patients who are not on getting any nasal antibiotics either, uh, and then, um, so patients who kind of meet those criteria um, are welcome to be a part of this. I think the limiting factor is, is that they do need to come here to Penn in order to get the swab done. And we are collecting blood specimens as well to study their, uh, the kind of peripheral um, immunologic signature, the type of immune cells that are in their blood. So um, that, that may be a limiting factor, but, you know, if somebody is in the area and wants, is willing to come down here, uh, we would love to um, have them be involved. So, I, you know, if they're interested, um, they could uh, kind of reach out to our rheumatology department. We do have a, um, a research manager, although I don't actually remember her number off the top of my head, um, but they could also just contact the um, Penn Rheumatology Clinic and let, let them know that they'd like to be um, enrolled in the study and we could um, accommodate that. Yeah, you know, the one thing I, I just think about when you look at these different studies, I'm sure there's like some, some good things and some bad things when you're looking at a disease like GPA. And at least I think Kaylee would agree with this with our work with the VF. So many, I don't know what an exact percentage would be, but it, it's felt like the majority of Patients I've gotten to meet, at least through my work with the VF, have been GPA patients, and it seems like there are a lot of, I mean, that, that kind of seems to be the predominant uh, specific disease among people with vasculitis, just, just given, it, obviously, when you're looking at a group of rare diseases, that one has a lot of more common tendencies. So I would have to think that, on one hand, it, it kind of helps you a little bit from a, a pooling standpoint, right, of you knowing that there's a greater odds of, of finding people that, that can also help match things and, and help look at some of these specific um, you know, targeted things you're, you're looking at in this study. But I would also have to imagine at the same time, it can kind of be tough just because we all know vasculitis, there's so many different moving parts in these. And so even for just, you know, your, your random GPA patient from patient to patient, see, I, I would imagine there's a lot of differences that could happen within, within each of those. So how has that impacted things? Cause I would just think from like a study perspective, it, it might be hard when you, you think about the number of GPA patients out there and, and some of the different um, some of the different things that they all have going on when you think about some of the complications that can come up post diagnosis and, and all of that. Right. 
Yeah, I, you're, I mean, you're hitting on definitely a big limitation of doing these types of studies in humans. And, um, you know, there's so many other variables going on, you know, um, what other types of environmental exposures, like we know that tobacco smoke can affect the nasal microbiome, or maybe who knows, like if the climate or if you live in a, a city or versus a suburban area, or if you have a dog at home, I mean, there's there's just like a gazillion other uh, uh, other variables that um, could come into play, which I think definitely makes this area uh, very challenging. And I, and I would say that there are people who are a little skeptical about the whole microbiome. Um, and, um, it, you know, they, I think just there's so many other variables and, it, and the microbiome can vary so much across individuals already. Um, so, you know, we try our best when we're doing these studies to collect as much information as we can so that we can kind of analyze all of the different the types of um, uh, factors that can affect our findings. You know, for instance, a lot of patients who have a lot of sinusitis or other sinonasal symptoms, they'll do saline irrigations or They'll uh, put, you know, uh, nasal steroids or nasal antibiotics in regularly. So we're, we're making sure we collect a lot of that information. If they just had an infection last month, we, we want to know that, too, because that may also disrupt their, their nasal microbiome. Um, but it's definitely a challenge. So I think what I'm, what I'm planning to do is let, let's start off, look at what's happening in humans and get a sense of what could be the key players. And then let's take take those key players, whatever those may be, bacteria, viruses, uh, fungi, and then take them into a lab and analyze them in a microscope, you know, in a more controlled setting. And um, I'm, you know, collaborating with a basic scientist who also has interest in the microbiome and has done a lot of work in um, animals, with mice in particular. Um, can we study this in um, another animal model like a mouse and uh, be able to kind of control a lot of these other variables and see if we're detecting any inflammation? So, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of like, that's, that's the model that is often done in medicine. We go from the bedside to the bench and do a lot of lab work, and then we translate that back to the bedside and, and see if maybe there's some novel therapies that can work in, in, um, in people. Right. Well, I, I will definitely be thinking about that my, the next time I do my, uh, my saline rinse that has you know, <laughs> impact, uh, sinusitis. I'll, I'll be thinking of you. Uh, <laughs> I know will be thinking about you for other, for, uh, for other reasons in her own research, but at least for me, that's what I'll be thinking about. I think in addition to the nasal microbiome and, and Ben's interest in that, I'd also like to hear a little bit more about your work in the blood vessel microbiome, because I think that's really unique in terms of just, you know, you talked a lot about how human behaviors can affect their nasal microbiome, but, you know, blood vessel microbiome, I think it's a little bit of a different beast. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, and this is a very murky area. So I will say um, there's probably it's still controversial whether there truly is a blood vessel microbiome. Um, I will just say, you know, an off commentary that there's a lot of debate uh, among other scientists about whether there's a placental microbiome. Um, and, you know, uh, so 
there, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of, uh, risk if, if the, if the experiments are not, are not done correctly, there's a risk of finding some false positive information. So, um, kind of just providing a little context of that, I think there's been some data uh, that have come out, uh, mainly from the Cleveland Clinic, um, just demonstrating the possibility that there could be these microbes that live in the vessel walls. And they're interested in this in large vessel vasculitides like giant arteritis and um, aortitis and takayasus. And um, they did actually, under microscope, they could actually see that there were microorganisms in the vessel walls. So I think that maybe um, provides a little more support that this may be real. But obviously, these are, these microbes are not present in high levels. Otherwise, patients would be having blood infections and being incredibly sick. So, um, so trying to understand what they're doing there and what kind of role they may play um, is unclear, but how did they get there, I think, is also an interesting question. And there's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of studies showing this idea of a leaky gut. So 95% of the bacteria in our bodies are present in our GI tract, and the lining of our GI tract can, you know, obviously can cause, uh, can get a little leaky, and bacteria can infiltrate through, and uh, usually our immune system is able to take care of it, but, you know, there could be cases where that may, that may not be the case, and perhaps that could be a source for uh, these microbes that get into the blood vessels. Um, but I think this is, uh, this is still unclear, but I will say that I think there's also a lot of interesting data about a higher prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease in patients with large vessel vasculitis, particularly uh, takayasus. And several groups have um, published about this. It's not huge. It may be somewhere around 8%, but it's a lot higher than the general population. So also kind of lends to this idea, could there be something in the gut that may be, you know, predisposing patients to developing large vessel vasculitis? Um, is an interesting question. And so I have talked about this idea with several vasculitis specialists and all have said, yes, you need to do this. Um, I have to actually give credit to Dr. Tony Shry, who is also here at Penn, who said, you really need to look at the gut microbiome in Takayasu's because I really think there's something there. So, um, so we, we are actually planning to start studying this in Takayasu's and giant cell arteritis where we're doing, we're actually going to be collecting stool samples from these patients and, um, and, and, and looking at them and then, and collecting some data just the way we did with the nasal microbiome and see if, you know, just get some broad stroke kind of picture. Are there differences between, between patients, between uh, patients who are healthy versus those who have vasculitis? Does there, are there changes that are happening um, in sync with their disease relapsing? Um, you know, things like that. And then, and then maybe kind of uh, delve in deeper if we think that there's really something there. So um, yeah, that would be that I, I'm, excited to do that because I think this will be very interesting and no one has, to my knowledge, no one has done this before um, in large vessel vasculitis. I'm really excited to see where that goes. That sounds fascinating. 
Um, in terms of what you hope to identify, do you think that you'll identify any type of behavioral health risk factors, or do you think it's going to be more genetically based predisposition type of work, I guess, in terms of what you see so far? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because uh, we had thought about should we be collecting data about, like you mentioned, like their birth, were they born as a C-section, were they, you know, what kind, we are collecting diet data, actually, we are having them fill out a very, very comprehensive diet questionnaire. Um, but some of the data, you know, you know, trying to be, you know, thoughtful too about not overburdening burdening patients with these forms, we haven't, we're not at the moment collecting any data about like their childhood or infancy. Um, but um, certainly there's a lot of interest in that area and there's a lot of, you know, that's like, a whole other talk about, you know, how how antibiotics in children and C-section and all these different things are um, potentially uh, playing a role in the rising obesity epidemic. Um, so certainly if it's affecting metabolic diseases, could it also be affecting our immune systems and predisposing to autoimmunity later in life, I think is also an interesting question. But, you know, really, really difficult to study because vasculitis is so rare and it's, you know, it's it's not like we can, you know, sample tons of infants and follow them 20 years, 50 years until they go on to develop vasculitis because it's probably going to be a, a small, small, um, small number of those. So, um, yeah, some some limitations kind of in, in our ability to study these questions. I know that the Takiyasu's folks so in our community will be excited, though, to hear uh, to hear about that. I mean, stool samples, not fun, but everything, <laughs> everything else I mean, is, is very exciting, obviously. Um, yeah, uh, I would have to say the whole training experience for our research coordinators was um, quite entertaining because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an experience dealing with other people's stool samples. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if, it, it doesn't hurt them. You're you're gonna you gotta go. You gotta you know it's it's something we do every day. Might as well you know send it off for a little research analysis. Um, but yeah, I mean at, at some point you know because numbers are you know limited by just doing this at one center, I am hoping we can eventually be able to do this even among patients who are you know in a different part of the country um, because it's. You know, we can we have a great mail system. They could just ship the samples to us and, you know, fill out forms at home. So um, perhaps that we may, you know, uh, start widening our scope for this study if we if we see something interesting. Yeah, no, that it, it is fascinating. It's it's reason like 589 why why I'm not a doctor. Uh, no, <laughs> no stuff, but but alas, you're, you're professional. Of it. It's been it's been great to talk to you today. I feel like we've both learned a lot. I think this will really benefit as well our our listeners who I know are, are, are curious to begin with to hear about some of the things uh, you're working on, Dr. E. And it, it has been really cool just to kind of see this, uh, the progression of everything. I guess it, it kind of ties in what you were just talking about to what I think a lot of us are wondering. And, and we ask this of a lot of our, I guess we'll be asking this of a lot of our guests. Like I said, you're our, our first doctor to join us on the podcast. But as you just look kind of to the future and, and this stuff is always ongoing with your different research and all sorts of these different type of things, but where do you see this sort of stuff going in the future? I mean, are we going to be looking at these super specific type testing? Is that going to be the, the best way you think to, 
to try and crack some of these uh, some of these codes or equations as, as you were talking about uh, earlier? Is that kind of your vision as as you get into more of these things? Yeah, I mean, what I mean, something that I'm actually planning to write a grant for is can we just use the nasal microbiome as a way to predict who's about to relapse? Because even in a relatively small number of patients, it was the strongest predictor of who's about to relapse. So whether or not those those bacteria are actually causing disease, you know, that's a whole other question. But even if the bacteria themselves are not causing the disease, they certainly are associated and potentially predictive of a, a flare. And, and so can we use that to, you know, identify who's about to flare and and then just treat those patients, you know, preemptively and prevent a flare um, and then be able to save other patients from, you know, needing to be on immunosuppressive agents? I think that would be a, a, a great um, tool to have and, um, you know, would be an interesting study to do. But even, you know, even bigger scope would be, yeah, can we identify exactly what these microbes are doing? Are they, how are they interacting with our immune system? And then can we target either those bacteria or those interactions with our immune system in a very specific way um, to prevent people from flaring, but also minimizing their use of immunosuppressive therapies, which, you know, come with a bunch of side effects. So we'll see. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know Kelly and I, we both really enjoyed talking with you today. And again, I think our, our listeners will enjoy this as well. I just wish we had more. more I feel like we could talk for hours on this because it is <laughs> also fascinating. Kaylee, anything else you wanted to, uh, to add before we, uh, before we wrap up? As you said, I have so many questions, but I think I'll let us wrap up. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Ree, we want to thank you again for joining us on the, the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. And I know as part of this, too, when you're talking about doctors with ongoing research, we will be anxious to see how everything turns out and how that impacts potentially the course of treatments down down the road. So thanks so much for uh, for joining us. And yeah, thanks we for having forward to, uh, Yeah, look forward to tracking how everything goes on your end. All right. Thanks. So that will, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so want to thank again, Dr. Reed for joining us today. Uh, Kaylee and I will be back to wrap up in just a moment. Uh, we'll take a break and be back right after this. So that was a really fun conversation, Kaylee. Uh, again, it was awesome to have Dr. Reed on with us today. I certainly learned a lot. I never knew that Bactrim was anything more than just a post-diagnosis uh, prevention type uh, drug from any sort of infection. And it is interesting, like even though how it's incredibly specific with what Dr. Ree is looking at, how much of an impact that can have on the vasculitis community just as a whole. Absolutely. And I was so fascinated by her focus on really targeted research and targeted treatment plans, because I think that she's really right in what she talked about in terms of uh, prednisone and the whole um, going from the bedside to the bench and kind of seeing what patients need and then making that happen. So I, I thought that was really just so exciting. Yeah, if only my diagnosis was GPA instead of GPA, <laughs> I would literally be like a perfect candidate for her uh, her study. I would love to be a part of that, but alas, what uh, what what can you do? I, I'll be I'm I'm going to be keeping tabs on how a lot of that uh, that research goes. Uh, and and it was kind of cool. That was our first the first doctor we got to have, Kaylee. I know. Um, this is something you're really well versed in getting to with your with how much you study, getting to talk to a lot of these 
medical professionals, and I thought it went really well. It was it was great, especially someone as well spoken as Dr. Reed to kind of hear about some of her insights in, into some of the macro elements as well, just kind of aside from her specific studies. Absolutely. I can't wait to read more of her work, honestly. I'm going to have to start following her even more closely now. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And our next guest will also be some, I mean, most of these, a lot of the guests we'll be speaking to are based on the East Coast, just because a lot of the uh, large health centers are there. So we had Dr. Ree from UPenn in Philadelphia today. We'll be speaking next in our next episode of Vasculitis Visionaries podcast with Dr. Caitlin Quinn from the Georgetown University Hospital. Hey, that's right where you live, uh, <laughs> capital in, in D.C. So she is an assistant professor of medicine in the rheumatology division there. And someone I know who you are familiar with her work, uh, Kaylee. So that's going to be another really exciting guest that we have on here. Yes, I'm really excited. Dr. Quinn is actually my rheumatologist um, and does some really fascinating work at NIH as well and just um, has a really cool connection to this field in general. And so I'm excited to talk to her, especially outside of the you know diagnostic treatment right, type of right. conversations we normally have. Very cool. Well, that's going to be our next guest. We look forward to having you uh, again on this Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. I want to thank uh, Dr. Rennie Ray uh, Ree once again for joining us. Uh, we'll say so long for Kaylee Bynes and Dr. Ree. I'm Ben Wilson saying so long. This has been yet another episode of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. <laughs>